Thoughts high, spite lights like a lightning strike. Left in the dark will turn mice biting on your mic. Thunder cracks gives you a fright, your plight sealed all night. Light the candle. The pit of power is more than you can handle. No video game enemies to strangle. You see, if you unplug this society, there would be many people staring at an empty screen. Saying, what does it all mean? Get out and ask people living in the scene. But now if you don't know, you Google it. Living on Facebook, what's love got to do with it? Dreaming of being the next YouTube phenomena. What is wrong with you? I better suck on a thermometer. You got the fever, there's nothing that is stopping you. Except for the spyware shutting down your monitor. Hello and thank you again for tuning in to the second part of the Movement Revolution interview with Travis Pollan. In the first part of the interview with Travis, we finished it off with him stating his mission for interprofessional communication. We continued the conversation by discussing the difference and similarities of the sports setting in the Philippines and in the U.S. where Travis is from. I then asked Travis about the shoulder screening tools he used for his Ph.D. In the second part, Travis continues to provide his excellent insight on his expertise. So let us get on with it. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that because um, actually we have one less here because we don't have athletic trainers in the Philippines. So okay. most of the people who deal, we deal with, for example, if I'm in, re in the rehab team, is the, the strength coach and then the skills coach or the technique coach. But that would be much more interesting if there was actually an athletic trainer. It's, you know, it's interesting because even I, I think that people have a hard time just knowing what the, you know, as a, let's say as a personal trainer, I know what a personal trainer does, but if I've never shadowed a physical therapist or I don't have friends who are a physical therapist, mm -hmm. I might not understand exactly what they do. And likewise with an athletic trainer, and so I think even, even skilled physiotherapists in these states don't understand exactly what athletic trainers do and don't do. And um, everybody just, everybody's met that one member of the other profession that they think is a really lousy practitioner and that they allow that to taint the whole profession. Yeah. So, you know, for example, uh, orthopedic docs they get a bad rap because some of them are not as good as others. And, you know, maybe you get a patient that came to you from an orthopedic doc that says the doc told me that my um, bone on bone and I'll be forever in pain until I'm old enough that it's a good idea to get a hip replacement. And it's like, geez, well, way to, you know, put these ideas into the person's head that um, one might not necessarily be true. And two are just, you know, you didn't even try exercise yet. And so, so now it's on the job of the physio to uh, try to try to convince them that, well, maybe exercise can help and maybe mm -hmm. you're not doomed. And um, it's just, it's hard to, you don't want to just outright disagree with the orthopedic doc, but at the same time, uh, you want to give this person a more optimistic outlook maybe um, and say, you know, let, let's, I know you're, I don't want to just, put the orthopedic doc on the, like under the bus. But uh, in my experience, <laughs> I've seen these things help people. So would you be willing to give this a shot? Yeah. Um, well, just for, just for, for my quick experience, like I think if you have a really good orthopedic doctor who's willing to collaborate and like communicate, just communicate with you as a rehab practitioner or a coach that totally helps so, so much. Like, 
it gives the whole team confidence and even the the player, the athlete confidence. Yeah, and that that should be what it's all about, right? Is that if you think about patient centered care, the athlete, or you know, if you have younger athletes, it's the the the, the parent athlete kind of duo. Um, but we're we're all talking about especially in the case of an injury, like we want to get this athlete back playing Mm -hmm. as soon as it's safe to do so. So why aren't we just better collaborating? Like a classic example that I remember is that an orthopedic doc that I was interfacing with when he was seeing adductor injuries, he was prescribing a very particular protocol. I don't know if you're familiar, it's called the Holmich protocol. It's from unfortunately not yet. Yeah. Yeah, so, which is fine. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's an evidence-based thing. Um, but at the same time, when he writes the whole much protocol in the script, it's like, so when, you, when, you, when the physiotherapist gets that, does that mean that the physiotherapist has to go to the study and give the person exactly that mm-hmm. protocol? <laughs> which is kind of, in a, in a research study, yeah, you, it has to be very standardized to, to an extent. Yeah. Um, or does it mean that the physio can take that recommendation and use their clinical expertise as the rehabilitation professional to give homage like ex- exercises or a homage type yeah. intervention while making it relevant to the particular person in front of them? And so that was the tricky part. It's like, well, why is the, the orthopedic doctor should just be, you know, writing the script for rehab without being without dictating what the rehab is going to be because the rehab should fall under the jurisdiction of the physio's expertise. Yet that, that orthopedic doctor happened to think he knew everything and think he knew how to rehab people better than the physios did. And so it was just constant struggle between those two, you know, practitioners because of that. Yeah. There could be cases like that. And, you know, it's uh, a bit unfortunate, not for the practitioner, but for the athlete, because he's that right, athlete because, is the one who's having a hard time. Yeah, ultimately, if if I believe or the the physio believes that this that something about that particular protocol should be tweaked for this person, yet their hands are tied because the script said they have to do exactly this. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, that patient or that athlete isn't getting what we believe to be the best care for them at this time. Wow. Well, that's, that's totally a, such an interesting and, you know, very nuanced topic. Do you, do you mind if we like going back to your PhD, Travis, um, mm-hmm. we have the comprehensive MMSST. It's like the, you know, the functional movement. What do you think applies most to swimming for the, for the movement assessments that you did or functional assessments? Yeah, uh, so that's research. a great question. So, so it's interesting because the the movement system screening tool, which built on the FMS, was something that I I sort of inherited. Uh, my advisor and her previous PhD student had developed this uh, based on a really comprehensive literature review, uh, which they subject to an expert panel, and then they did a cross-sectional study where they looked at individuals with and without non-traumatic shoulder injuries and found that the athletes who had non-traumatic shoulder injuries performed worse on our 14, actually at the time it was 16 tests, but we reduced it to 14. But anyway, 
Um, it was very rigorously developed and it was rigorously developed from the mindset that it would be used on a general athletic population and not necessarily specifically for swimmers. However, when I, you know, did my dissertation, the, mm -hmm. the population that I had access to and the population that I was interested in was swimmers. And so we decided to use this testing battery that it had a lot of lower body tests in addition to upper body tests and tests for the trunk. And from a swimming standpoint, yeah, they, they see some knee injuries, they see some low back injuries, but predominantly the injuries are shoulder injuries. So it, on the one hand, you can say, okay, that, that's fine because based on the, if you're familiar with like the regional interdependence model, um, you might be having a shoulder problem, but it might be a ramification of an issue somewhere else in the body. So, you know, you don't necessarily just need to assess or screen the upper extremity. It, 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 there's, there's merit to doing a more thorough workup of the entire body. So mm -hmm. with that in mind, we did this 14 item test. Um, but it, in, with included in it were, there was a, a Davies test or a closed kinetic chain upper extremity stability test. So that one is, has been shown in other sports to be relevant to upper extremity injuries. Um, we also looked at glenohumeral internal rotation deficit. We looked at the FMS's shoulder mobility test. Mm -hmm. And we also looked at, um, there was one more upper extremity test, which I'm now blanking on, but maybe it'll come to me. But anyway. Yeah. Um, Sorry, the, the FMS is the one that with fist at the back of the person, right? That's yes. The, so yes, it's also right. called, in the orthopedic literature, it's called mm -hmm. the athlete scratch test. Yeah. I should have known that. All right. FMS yeah. decided to change the name for branding purposes, I guess. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Oh, we looked at uh, scapular dyskinesis was the other one. Mm -hmm. All right. So, yeah. yeah. So of all of those things, um, you would think that of any of those could be worthwhile or, or uh, show you something about injury risk in swimmers. Um, if they had pain, if they had severe scapular dyskinesis, if they had really poor performance on the closed kinetic chain of extremity stability test. And then it ended up that when we looked at the relationship between the total score on our 14 tests, as well as any of the individual tests, we found no association between those tests and injury. Mm. And so on the one hand, you could look at that and say, well, uh, maybe it's because these athletes are, you know, their sport occurs in water. So yeah. they just, what, whatever happens on land just isn't really specific or relevant to their movement in the pool. Um, even though you would think, well, if they can't rotate their shoulder outside the water, how are they going to do it in the water? But that's just, that just wasn't what we found. And, I'll give the caveat that um, given the small sample size, we, there, there's just, there's a, still a little bit of, or maybe it's still an open question, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, we, we would need to replicate the study in a larger cohort to, to say definitively or, or with more confidence that none of these tests matter. Um, but at least we can say from the data that we have that none of them are strong risk factors. Um, mm -hmm. But so with, with the idea in mind that it wasn't specific enough for the sport, we also, like I mentioned, we looked at freestyle swimming technique because, yeah. okay, maybe the land mechanics don't matter, but maybe the actual, the, the motions that they're going through over and over in the pool do. 
And so we looked at seven different parameters of the freestyle stroke, and we found that there was one that actually did strongly increase the risk of injury, which was when the hand entered the water, if the hand crossed the midline in front of the body, so that right, would kind yeah. of like if you're familiar with the nears tests for shoulder impingement mm -hmm. that's kind of your classic position where you're going into like um just a maximal humeral flexion mm -hmm. or abduction yeah. um that's a pain provocation position so uh, imagine if you do that like tens of thousands of times over and over uh you could imagine how that might be putting just aggravating somebody's shoulder yeah but the other way of looking at that is that, okay, there was that one thing, but then all these other things that we looked at weren't relevant. So um, that it, it sort of speaks to the idea that many roads lead to Rome and there's not necessarily one specific stroke technique that is going to be optimal for everybody from an injury standpoint. Or, or maybe I could say that um, the people who got injured didn't necessarily all demonstrate one pattern. So it, it, it's, it's just more complicated than that, unfortunately. Yeah, sure. I wish it were so simple that you yeah. could say. <laughs> then, even within the people who were exhibiting that crossover shoulder technique, only half of the people who did that got injured. So it's not like it was perfect from that standpoint either, but it was able to identify a lot of the people who were getting injured. So, so the, the nice thing about that is that it, that is also a technique that we believe is not contributing to performance. Uh, mm -hmm. So from the standpoint of, okay, if you enter the water medial to where, like in front of the shoulder, then the first sweep that you have to make is lateral. Mm -hmm. And both of those movements are not contributing to your forward propulsion. Uh -huh. So just from that standpoint, we would want things going more front to back. So yeah. if the hand can enter straight in front of the shoulder, then it can start pulling directly back. And it's just going to propel you faster. And so what we, what we also found, and this was sort of separate from my dissertation itself, but we looked at the relationship between the technique and performance. And we, we did find a relationship there. So if people were making fewer errors in their freestyle technique, they were faster performers. And so that's an encouraging finding. And so that sort of speaks to the idea that, okay, these biomechanical factors uh, the, the relationship with injury really isn't so strong, but, but there does seem to be something there with performance, which intuitively, I think we, we have long thought that to be the case that, you know, swimmers or any athlete with better technique is going to be a higher performer. And that had not been shown uh, really with much mathematical or quantitative rigor until my study. And so I'm working on getting that published sort of separately from the stuff that oh, I'm working wow. on. I think maybe that was the one of the coolest parts of what I looked at. And then the, the last thing that I'll say with the, the movement aspect mm -hmm. to the online stuff is that I, I looked at something and I, this probably isn't going to show up in any of the publications, but I ran a correlation between that closed kinetic chain upper extremity stability test and mm -hmm. then the swimmers, um, not just their freestyle, but I looked at whatever their best event was and kind of compared that to whatever the record was for that event. So if you, if you held the record in the conference for that, you would have a hundred percent of the performance. And if you were like a second slower, then maybe you would be 95% of the performance. 
Um, and I, I did find a relationship between the closed kinetic chain upper extremity stability test and swimming performance, which isn't it, which is not uh, surprising. I mean, it kind of makes sense if you're because that that motion on land is somewhat similar to like if you're good at that test, you have you have good stability of the shoulder, you have good stability of the trunk, you are explosive, um, you have decent repeated bout endurance because. The, the test is two 15-second trials. So, but that was the only one of all of the tests that we did on land that mm -hmm. had any, any relationship with the pool. So just to go back to the original thing that I was saying about, like, this was a screen that I inherited that was ge more generic for other sports. If you were going to design something for swimming right off right from scratch, maybe there, were, there would be additional things that you would look at um, maybe you would look at thoracic spine rotation. Mm, maybe you okay. would look at um, like a med ball, a unilateral med ball shot put test where you're just sitting mm -hmm. and tossing the ball. Um, yeah. Maybe you look at the upper extremity Y balance test. So mm -hmm. if you've seen that before, yeah, it's yeah. kind of you're in a push up position or, or a one arm yeah. platform and you're, you're pushing the indicator box on the Y balance kit out in three directions. Mm -hmm. uh, so that just gets at your limits of stability uh, for the, for the upper extremity. And the, you know, the evidence on that isn't super great in any sport yet, but it hasn't also hasn't been looked at in swimmers. So we really, from an injury standpoint, so we, we don't really know yet. Um, but so that was, yeah, that was an interesting uh, sort of as we were developing the, the, the study is, okay, we're going to use this, this movement screen, system screening tool. It is a more generic or broad, it's a, it's a comprehensive test, but it's, it's not necessarily swimming specific. But then even if you go to some of the other literature that has developed testing batteries for specific sports, there's one called the soccer injury movement screen, the SIMS, by a really good researcher by the name of McCune, I think Robert McCune, mm -hmm. um, done some good uh, research on the FMS as well as the, the screen that he developed for soccer. And I think he didn't find anything. When, you know, he developed a screen specifically for soccer, uh, mostly focusing on the lower extremity, of course, because in that sport, that's the, the relevant, you know, injuries. Um, and he wasn't able to find any association between the, the, his screen and injury in soccer players. And so the, I guess the, the long story about movement screening is just that it's, it's very difficult to try to uh, identify that as a, a single predictor or single risk factor yeah. for, yeah. for injury. I mean, I mean it, in some cases, the studies have shown it's a risk factor, um, but it's, it's never really a super strong one. And, Basically, that goes back to our earlier conversation of just that uh, when you talk about injury prevention and injuries in general, there are so many factors at play. There's mm -hmm. previous injury, there, there might be movement, there is training load, there's uh, sleep, there's psychological factors as yeah. well that really are under understudied, I think. So um, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, we're really lucky that you shared all that information from your phd thank you for asking about it yeah hopefully Sorry. two years from now it'll be published these yeah. things take forever to get actually into the, the scientific literature but um 
uh, I guess I'm not doing it myself any favors because I've been a little bit, <laughs> I've been a little bit procrastinating on getting them submitted, but uh, that is a, a project for me that's coming up. But you've been doing a lot in social media, so I guess that that kind of like um, how you have to balance that too. Right? That, yeah, yeah. That, that is the challenge because you know <laughs> while I was finishing up this research and, and writing it all out, I had no time to do anything but that, and so finally when I was able to get that out of the way from the university standpoint and satisfy all those criteria, I was like, all right, let me take a little step back, remind the internet who I am, uh, <laughs> connect with great people like you and do opportunities like this, which I Thanks, yeah. might've had to pass, pass up before because just because I was oh, all right. so under the wire. So, but yeah, it's always about striking that balance between the academic responsibilities and the, um, the, the educational stuff on the internet. Yeah, Travis, if you stop posting on social media, your followers will go mad, bro. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, I, you know, I, I often wonder because I've, I've disappeared for, for months at a time and I wondered, oh, I, want, I wonder if people even remember who I am when I return to posting and it's, it seems to be okay. Uh, people don't unfollow too much when you're, when you're disappeared. But. So before we get out of swimming, Travis, I've noticed that in some like coaches and also in your social media posts that pull-ups are coming from the outside. It seems like a very important exercise for swimmers. Would you agree with that? I think I would, but I also think you might have sent me a study recently. Yeah, well, I, I only say that because I know there is some research actually oh, right. on upper body strength and swimmers, and I, I've come across it, but I haven't read it, so mm -hmm. or I haven't read it fully, so... I can only speak from my, you know, in the trench or practical experience in saying that I think that that's a really important movement for swimmers. And I, I wish I could tell you, I wish I could tell you and the listeners exactly what the research says about it. Um, but if you look at it, it has face validity, right? Because uh, mm -hmm. the movement that you're doing when you're doing a pull-up is very similar to really all of the strokes um, from the standpoint that when your hand enters the water, whether it is in freestyle, backstroke, breaststroke, or fly, um, the next step is uh, basically shoulder extension or shoulder adduction, which is the movement that we train when we're doing pull-ups. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's not exactly the same. When you're swimming, you are generating the force through your entire forearm. Um, when you're pulling up, you're just hanging on a bar. Um, but it's... it's um, as close as we can get to, we, I mean, we could talk about sports specificity and training and how, how much you really need to mimic the sport to make the training effective. But um, if, you were, if you were generally trying to work, if you're working with a swimmer and you want to get them stronger, pull-ups and rows are going to be, you know, really good bang for your buck exercises. Uh, and of course, simultaneously, you would want to balance that with the smaller rotator cuff and shoulder stability things that are going to be mm -hmm. the you know, your classic prehab exercises for the shoulder, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think pull-ups are, are super important and, but also I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they're any, I wouldn't say that they're much more important than also doing, you know, compound lifts for the lower body squatting and deadlifting because every time you do a flip turn or an open turn in the pool, you're, you're pushing off the wall and having a really strong push off and a, a good underwater kick uh, makes up a substantial portion of the race. 
So they're, 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 there's lots to consider when you say, okay, well, swimming, you mostly think of the upper body, mm-hmm. um, but the kick is contributing some to the propulsion. And then the, that like almost like a jump squat that you're doing when you're pushing off the wall every time, as well as the undulations that you're doing underwater, which are really about your core strength and your core awareness and power. Uh, those are playing a huge role in the, the race too, uh, especially depending on what the event is, whether it's a shorter race or a longer race. But um, yeah, I, I, I think speaking to like the, the sports specificity, it's whether you're training a football player or a swimmer, a lot of the exercises might look the same, but it's the, the ratio of those things and the uh, parameters that you're doing around those things, whether it's a, a distance swimmer or a sprinter, that's kind of where the, the devil is in those details. But mm-hmm. you might not necessarily, if you just observed a training session, a training session for a hockey player or a swimmer, it might be 50 or 75% the same. And then the, the other stuff, the finer details, the assistance or auxiliary or accessory exercises, whatever you want to call them, that's where it's going to differ based on the sport's unique needs as well as the, the injury patterns that you see. Wow, that's excellent insight for me. And, you know, I value your experience in swimming. So that's why it's always nice. Well, it was nice that you uh, kind of expounded on that topic. So thanks yeah, for that, Travis. Thank you. It's, I've been working with one swimmer, actually, like in an online training capacity. And mm-hmm. she's in training for the uh, Olympic trials, wow. um, which would have been, I think, now or yeah. next month <laughs> or, of course, a year later. Um, and so that's been really cool being able to um, just be be in control of her dry land or out of the pool training and um, kind of lend the expertise that I have uh, to that. And and now actually they, her and her coach have gotten me involved with the, the age group team that they coach and they're younger athletes. Um, so it's it's always nice being able to work with swimmers because I have the swing background and the yeah. strength and background and, you know of course when you're working with a sport that you've never worked with like when i was getting involved with hockey players mm-hmm. there, there you can always learn and pick those things up but when you've been involved in that sport for a long time and so intimately in the way that i was yeah totally I, just, I understand what the you know what the demands of the sport are from a, a personal experience yeah i can from my experience i also can like um see that because uh, previously I was into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and when I was assigned with the national team jiu-jitsu team it went um, it was really nice because I knew what was happening and every every training and it it really I found the value in it and it kind of brought me back to before when I was training it so yeah I know what you mean it's super um, helpful and that and that sport is I from my untrained eye it's very nuanced and fairly different from, I mean, it's a grappling sport. So mm-hmm. the grip is huge. The, the positions that you get in are strange and there's debate over whether you need to train those positions or avoid those positions in training and just save them for the competition. And maybe yeah. that's a whole separate issue, but yeah. I like spinal, spinal flexion comes to mind because that's one that the athletes need to be really strong in, but mm-hmm. there's plenty of debate over how much you need to train that movement pattern. Um, yeah i'm of the belief that it's okay to train it uh, mm-hmm. yeah it's probably- kind of like a major 
thing with jujitsu that there's a lot of spinal flexion because sometimes they're going to stack you even in wrestling and you know some they have to be able to adapt or to be to gradually be strengthened in that position yeah so you're not gonna it doesn't make sense to avoid that in training mm-hmm. if they're going to be then exposed to it in competition it makes sense to expose them to that gradually and under in a controlled setting at first so that when they for do sure. get to the competition they're prepared for it um and whether there is any sort of risk involved with doing that movement uh well you are you're assuming that risk as a, an athlete doing that sport so that's that's one thing but then if you want to talk about general population people doing spinal flexion training uh when they might not need it as much uh mm-hmm. because the at least at to as high a level as a competitive um mixed martial artist or, or brazilian jiu-jitsu um competitor might sort of a different conversation but even there i think it's probably it's probably been demonized maybe unnecessarily maybe we can talk about that on another episode because i know you have a lot of Sure, sure. I have to eat dinner. I'm very, very happy. And I feel very fortunate that you gave me the time to take this call and take this uh, interview. So hopefully uh, our listeners will also appreciate that, especially when they listen to your expertise. I feel very fortunate for you giving me the opportunity to have this conversation and for your awesome questions. I hope we can do this again. Thank you, Ali. I, I look forward to it. Unfortunately, we ran out of time to talk about spinal flexion, but it was great that we were briefly able to discuss the question whether we should train spinal flexion. It is actually a very contentious topic. Fortunately, my next guest is also an expert on the spine as he was a former chiropractor before becoming a physio. Please follow OliverCGP.Advancement on IG and FB so that you can find out who he is when we release the episode. If you have any questions, just send me a message at ollie at opadvancement.com or at oliverscgp.advancement in FB or IG. Thank you so much to our graphic artist, Veronica. Also to Haynes Rhymes for our intro and background music, www. These are just thoughts going through my head. A moment of reflection that you soon forget. Imagine a world without the internet, where you can't download your intellect. These are just thoughts going through my head. A moment of reflection that you soon forget. Imagine a world without the internet, where you can't download your intellect. Hashtag trending, Snapchat, Insta, Periscope, Esports, BuzzFeed, Tinder. So many ways to meet people online. No one ever has one talk at a time. Messenger, WhatsApp, groups pinging everywhere. Better make it happen now. Wait a minute, no one cares. People press like, they think it means something. Everybody's real like should mean something. Now, if you don't know, Wikipedia, who Members encyclopedias. If you need a holiday, Expedia, Skyscanner, Airbnb, much speedier. The shopping online makes us greedier, but it's even to the needy now easier. I can't even hold it together. Don't 
Terry Dibby and we write whatever. New tech outdates, looking at phone updates. Can't relate, why wait? Search for new mates. Nothing is private, it's all in the cloud. Is this a maintenance even allowed? You used to shout from the hills if you're proud. A good signal will sort you out now. Virtual reality is high definition. The secret to the things in your life you're missing. Blog your way into the big time. Achievements only exist if they're online. Apparently, people used to use landlines, agree to a mutual place and time. But what happened if they changed their mind? I went about sat nav, how did they find it? Midnight stuck attack, cover copy cabbage patch, technophobic, there's probably a nap for that. These are just thoughts going through my head. A moment of reflection that you soon forget. Imagine a world without the internet where you can't download your intellect. These are just thoughts going through my head. A moment of reflection that you soon forget. Imagine a world without the internet where you can't download your intellect.